BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hello. I'm here. I'm doing all right. That's right. It's episode (laughs) 192. We're talking about processed food. We'll get into that very shortly, but you know, we we got some stuff to talk about first. One, how the heck are you, man? Like, I feel like you're back, you're in the hospital doing real work. Uh, How are things going? Uh, yeah, so I'm on my second round of work at the new hospital, my new job, uh, working with residents and medical students, uh, seeing seeing plenty of patients, doing a lot of teaching, and that's really what I enjoy doing a lot. So so that's been good so far, and, I, and I'm uh, looking for ways to uh, kind of expand the the teaching that I'm doing there to help develop some of these residents into independent clinicians in the coming years. So that's that's what I've been up to in the past couple of weeks. Now, is the team smaller than what you had before, about the same size, or what's what's going on? The actual team that I work with in terms of a senior resident and two interns usually, and then a couple of medical students is, is quite similar to what I've had in other places. Um, the volume of patients that we see seems to be on average a little bit less, although again, I have a limited uh, you know experience to, to base that off of so far only uh, four weeks in this current place compared to where I've been before, where things have potentially been a lot busier, uh, certain, uh, at certain times. So we'll see how it goes, but regardless of how many patients I have, I just tend to find ways to, to make things educational and make things teachable for them. So that's, that's what I've been up to. You know what I miss? I, and it's, it's like the, the changing, like we just went through a heat wave and now it's gotten a little, you know, we're at the end of summer, beginning uh-huh. of, of autumn and, and you, it's the back to school kind of thing. And I, and one of my, one of my friends just started, she just started medical school. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, man, what an exciting time. <laughs> I, I, I kind of miss it, you know, a little bit, uh, not, not like the grind of studying or, you know, whatever, just kind of like slogging through, Oh, I've got an immunology test and yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. No, but the, I don't know, it's exciting just starting something brand new and you feel like, man, I've just one step in this journey. That's going to, yeah, I mean that's that's my favorite part is seeing seeing these uh, these adult learners, I'll say, uh, uh, come in and and seeing where they where they start uh, and and where they end up over over time. Seeing them gain confidence in their clinical skills and their you know ability to reason through complicated cases and and manage things that they maybe didn't think that they used to be able to manage. All that stuff is is a lot of fun. You know, it'd be cool if we had a like a barbell medicine like mentorship program kind of thing you get that uh with your residents and but i don't get that except for you know the people in our in our seminars and in my dms and stuff but it'd be interesting if we had like i don't know kind of like a core group of people that we were working with over a period of time i don't know something to think about 
what's up with your what's up with your training? How are things going there? Uh, training's good. I have a meet, and I think it's eight weeks from now. So trying to, I don't know, temp, temper kind of expectations in a way. Like I, I had a really great training cycle before my last meet. And a lot of that was because at least the way I think about it is because the pressure was off. I was literally mm-hmm. just coming back from this, that shoulder dislocation. And so this time around, I'm kind of, instead of expecting like, Oh, you're all firing all cylinders. Let's go. It's more like, eh, just have fun with the training. And you know, what's there on meet day is what's there on meet day. I just think putting unnecessary pressure on myself is something I'm prone to do. Mm-hmm. And it just makes my training worse. Like it, I don't enjoy it as much. I don't get as much out of it. And I don't, you know, I don't, uh, stick to the plan as much. And even, and that's after, you know, over a decade of training and it's just like knowing my tendency, I'm like, well, I still put in enough work today, so I'm, I'm good. Yeah. And, uh, those kind of, those kind of thought processes happen to, to the best of us. (laughs) And, and you had talked recently and, and part of the reason I bring it up is because you'd mentioned that book uh, by Steve Magnus, uh, do hard things, which I'm about halfway through at this point. And it's just been funny. I pinged you the other day. I was like, I feel like I could have written this book because, or we could have, because so many of the topics that are discussed are things that we have uh, discussed among ourselves about our training or at seminars or with our clients. I mean, I think one of the, the more uh, significant ones was this whole concept of like, rather than me- using the metric of your success being peak performance at any given time, thinking more about like bringing up your, the floor of your performance, like what mm-hmm. is your average any day, you know, kind of single at seven or something like that. And if that's going up, then that's actually a, a, a much more a reassuring thing as far as progress goes compared to like the, the heaviest you've ever lifted, which the more advanced you get may happen once every couple of years or something, depending on how things go. So there's a lot of good messages in that book, uh, at least so far that I'm halfway through it. I know you finished it. I recommended it to, uh, I recommended that Sam, my client, Sam Calhoun read it. Cause I was like, uh, this book reflects a lot of the conversations we've had over the years that we've worked together. And she was like reading it now. And she's like, Oh yeah, this is exactly what we talked about. So would recommend. <laughs> yeah. Great book. I, I've, uh, I DM'd Mr. Magnus, uh, see on Twitter. So we'll see if we can get him on the podcast. Cause yeah. uh, it's funny. Somebody tweeted like at him and me at the same time. Uh-huh. And he was like, oh, man, that's so great. Like, I'm I'm super pumped that you guys are following my stuff. And I was like, uh, yeah, man, you seem like a good dude. Let's uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll get him on the podcast. So, cool. yeah, we'll see what happens seven weeks from now. Um, no, no real pressure. I just, you know, steady improvement. That'd be that'd be nice. And then uh, wrapping up the motocross season and uh, feeling good about being musculoskeletally intact. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, you know, what's interesting is like um, – Having been removed for, for for from it for so long, I actually uh, I did way better than I, I thought I was going to do, and it's been way more enjoyable. Uh, my dad even said to me, he goes, he goes, yeah, you got you got a lot better. I I didn't really expect that, <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> but but yeah, no, it, that's been interesting, and uh, so we'll see. Yeah, next year, I, I think I'm, I think with all these extracurriculars between racing, golf, and training, I, I'm actually going to need to plan out kind of like the competitive year if I really want to do something uh, um, special in, in any of those disciplines. Otherwise, it's just kind of like, yeah, I'm having fun, which is also fine. I just don't, you know, yeah. I think I think just some higher level planning is going to be useful. Uh, I have not seen you post on Instagram in a minute, so I assume that your training is not going great, but it's adequate. <laughs> it's okay. I've just uh, mentally not been super interested at the moment, so I'm actually in rare form taking a little bit of a a break from like pushing heavy singles and things like that. I'm doing other stuff and spending more time in the pool and actually doing some stuff on the bike and things like that. So cardio um, Austin. 
not like road bike, but on the the air the air bike and stuff like that. But actually, more time in the pool is is really what's happening at the moment, which you can relate to with going back to your prior sport as well. So, still in the gym, still lifting. Nothing particularly interesting, but uh, getting getting faster in the water again is cool. So in in motocross, like the thing that that kind of tells me, like that kind of limits my how fast I can go or or whatever is this exertional compartment syndrome on my forearms. I'm actually considering like getting a procedure done to like, like a fasciotomy to, to not have to deal with that anymore. But that's like my limiter in swimming. What do you, what is your limiter? Like, cause it's, it's, it's not so much that you're out of breath cause you're underwater, right? Like you're, just you're, like, mm. you're always sort of out of breath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's like, wh- how do you like, how do you know that ah, I'm pushing too quickly or, or um, um, my pace is too fast? Ugh, not something I've thought of since so much of it is just like an intuitive feel at this point of like, oh, I just know this is this is not a good idea. But you definitely the consequences of such decisions manifest uh, quite apparently. And so I remember like some races where uh, either I went out way too hard or uh, a, a, when I used to coach swimming, like a swimmer of mine would have gone out too hard. And then really what you tend to see is like stroke efficiency goes way down. And Mm. so whereas typically you're able to like, you know, get a fair amount of distance per stroke, if things are going really efficiently, that shortens up a ton. And so, you know, when I'm coaching people's technique to improve, a lot of times I'm trying to get them to take fewer strokes per length and lengthen things and get more efficient, pull more water with each stroke. When that shortens up, when you're taking a ton of strokes to not move very far and like your muscles feel like they're shutting down and they're not cooperating, um, that's usually the feel that you get. Um, Mm. And so, so typically, you know, it's, it is uh, most often not so much of a respiratory breathing thing because if you're trying to go really fast, if you're trying to sprint, then you're deliberately not breathing. So typically yeah, yeah. like in a, in a 50 freestyle or something, you're doing it on zero breaths or maybe one breath. Um, so that's definitely less of the limiter. And, and you're not going to like tap out from fatigue in, in a race that short, but like the 200 free, 500 free kind of things, like if you if you blow it out way too fast, then you're going to hurt really badly coming home and your stroke is going to shorten up a ton and you're not going to be moving very far uh, with each stroke. I think that probably at this point for me, like a bigger limiter is actually my legs, which is interesting, but I think a lot of it has to do with how much more muscle mass there is on them Mm. and how much oxygen they can consume if I'm actually kicking really hard. And so most of my swimming right now is involves very light kicking. I'm not pushing like spinning the wheels very hard just because like they can probably suck up so much oxygen and, and, uh, and burn out more quickly. Um, so that's, that's probably a common limiter for some folks too. Yeah. You've gotten so good at like not only creating energy, but also using energy super quickly so that you can lift heavy, heavy weights that now you're like, oh, well, it's got to be submaximal kind of, but then also like sustained. (laughs) And you're like, kind of, kind of, kind of need to train this a little bit. Right. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll keep the crap, the, the audience updated on, on your swimming exploits. We'll wait for you to get the barbell medicine jammers (laughs) can get out there and, and, uh, and represent. Um, just as a reminder, we do have some live in-person seminars coming up. We're in Los Angeles in November of this year. We'll also be in Atlanta, uh, at Alpha Strength and Power in February of 2023. And then we'll be in New York at CrossFit South Brooklyn in May. And then our pain and rehab team, they're in Miami in January. So if you want to join us or our pain and rehab team at one of our live in-person seminars, you can check the link in the description below, get signed up. I know the spots are going quickly, but we'd love to see you at a seminar. And also, our whey protein is back in stock. Whey RX, it is a whey protein isolate. It only has 80 calories. It's got nothing in it, but just whey protein isolate and a little sweetener. Um, it's back in stock, available on our website. You can uh, get that with the link in the description below as well. And that leads us right into today's topic. Austin, did you know that a protein supplement is considered an ultra-processed food? 
I think I did because I think we've talked about this before, but I can see how that might not be uh, intuitive to, to everybody. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And so today we're going to talk about processed foods, what that means, um, not only just definition wise, but also like for health, uh, for public policy. And, you know, what what about the recommendation? You know, hey, just eat less processed foods. Like, is that is that any good? Uh, so let's kick this off uh, with some definitions. Uh, what is food processing and what is a processed food? Um, so food processing is a critical element in the food supply chain. Processed foods have been a part of civilization since since ancient times in an effort to improve things like preservation, so avoiding food spoilage and foodborne diseases, uh, palatability, make foods better tasting and increase the bioavailability of the nutrients they're in, so cooking, for example, uh, the stability during transportation, so you can't, can take food with you, and also convenience, so you're expending less daily resources for obtaining and making food that you can eat. So uh, fire for roasting meat and cooking foods um, has been discovered uh, in civilizations that were about 2 million years old. So we've been doing this for a long time. Same thing with drying and smoking. That's dating back to 6,000 years ago. And in more recent times, pasteurization, sterilization. And and now, particularly uh, recently, there's a lot of new uh, food technology and food uh, uh, processing technology that's uh, trying to improve the sustainability and the uh, access that different uh, people have to different foods. So practically speaking, all food is processed in some way. And without it, we'd have a tough time obtaining food. I mean, realistically, no food that we're obtaining unless you like grow it and don't do anything to it, you know, as far as <laughs> like removing the inedible parts, for example, cooking, washing, et cetera. Practically all the food, even, even if you're, you know, a farmer is processed in some way. Um, we'll talk more about this later, but one idea uh, behind classifying food according to its degree of processing is that in categorizing it, it may allow people to make more informed decisions about the relative healthfulness or health-promoting nature of the foods that they're choosing to consume. And so to do this, the most commonly used food classification system with respect to processing is called the NOVA food classification system. This was published uh, in about 2000. Uh, I think it's 15 is when it first came out. Um, but then the paper, uh, a lot of the papers from um, Montero, who is out of Brazil, uh, came out in 2019. But like 95% of the papers on food processing and how that relates to health and this that, and the other use the food, NOVA food classification system. And so invariably people go, well, what does NOVA even mean? It's, it's not an acronym. It's just it's just who word. they are. <laughs> it's just a word. Yeah. Made it up. <laughs> yeah. And so the goal, the goal of this classification system is to classify all foods according to the nature, extent, and purposes of the industrial processes they undergo. Um, it is by far, the, again, the most commonly used food processing, pr food processing classification system used in the literature. And there are four main groups. So group one uh, relates to unprocessed or minimally processed foods, so things like fruit vegetables, eggs, meat, milk, water, etc. Uh, I actually had a person in my uh, on my, one of my Instagram posts where I was talking about trying to alter their the food environment to uh, improve dietary pattern. And I was like, well, if you, you know, get rid of or uh, reduce the access to uh, processed foods, you know, that may result in a better dietary pattern. And she was like, water is an ultra processed food. And I'm like... <laughs> Actually, no, it's, it's group one. So minimally processed, but you know, night, thanks for playing. Somebody um, had to put those hydrogens and that oxygen together. Okay? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> that dihydrogen oxide is going to kill you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, group one tends to be unprocessed or minimally processed foods. Um, and we've, I've linked the, uh, entire 
Nova uh, classification system document in the description below so you guys can check that out afterwards. Uh, group two, these are mostly culinary ingredients that are processed with things like oils, sugar, salt, etc. They um, are rarely consumed by themselves, but usually they're added to foods to extend their shelf life, uh, sort of that preservation kind of thing, so less food spoilage. Group three, it's called processed. They're the processed foods. Um, these are foods obtained by combining foods, uh, both group one and two. You combine both of those and you get these group three foods. Uh, these include stuff like bread, canned vegetables and fruits, bacon, smoked fish, simple cheeses with salt added to them. Um, processed foods usually retain the basic identity and most constituents of the original food. But again, a little bit uh, higher level of processing to uh, make them a little tastier, uh, help with preservation and shelf life, also transportation. Um, so those are the first three groups. And group four is the group that we're gonna, probably going to spend the most time on during this podcast. These are the ultra-processed foods, UPFs. Uh, they are the ones that are that use many different ingredients, including food additives, and the ingredients are rarely used in home food preparation. Uh, the ingredients are rarely used in home food preparation. Uh, they also use industrialized processing techniques to improve palatability and, again, preservation. So things like sweetened cereals, pastries, pre-prepared meat, pasta, pizza dishes, chips, etc. These are, again, the foods that most people are probably referring to when they talk about processed foods. Um, they're, used, those, they're really not referring to group three type foods. They're usually these ultra processed foods. And the most common sort of added ingredients are added salt, added sugar, and added fat, um, often in much higher concentrations that are in processed foods. So the difference would be like, you know, you can buy pre prepackaged chicken breast, for example, right? And usually they add salt and maybe a few other preservatives so that you can transport and, and preserve um, the chicken uh, so it doesn't spoil as quickly. But there's also ultra-processed chicken that has a bunch of additional additives and added fat and, and you know, sometimes added sugars, uh, whatever, which kind of change the nature of what you're, what you're eating. Um, so, Austin, if you had to predict or estimate, rather, how, how much of your diet do you think is composed of these ultra-processed foods versus processed foods? Uh, oh my, I mean, I, I think I've described my typical diet as having some oats and some whey and then, you know, un, I would say unprocessed meats like chicken and fish, uh, fall in there, vegetables, some rice, potatoes, things like that. Probably the most highly processed thing that I have is ice cream. Uh, and then if you're <laughs> counting, uh, whey protein as a, as in this category, then I guess that would fit as well. But as far as like candy or pastries or things like that, almost never pizza is like a rare thing that I might consume. So I don't know, less than 20% uh, for sure, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I would say in a, my weekly dietary pattern, yeah, the group four stuff it represents 10 to 20% tops. Um, and most of that's going to be either whey or a protein bar or, you know, some some meal that I don't normally consume but is quite yeah, tasty. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but that is not reflective of the current dietary pattern uh, in most um, civilized societies. So ultra-processed foods make up more than half of the total dietary energy consumed in high-income countries like the United States, Canada, and the UK. And between one-fifth and one-third of total dietary energy in middle-income countries such as Brazil, Mexico, and Chile. Um, these, the amount of ultra-processed foods are, that are consumed are growing and sales are also going up about 1% per year in high-income countries and up to 10% per year in middle-income countries. They tend to be a little cheaper. Uh, and so the amount 
of ultra-processed foods that are being consumed are increasing. In the United States and the UK, over 55% of the average daily energy intake now comes from ultra-processed foods. Uh, and those in the highest quintiles of ultra-processed food consumption consume over 75% of their daily energy intake from ultra-processed foods. They're becoming increasingly more prevalent in the diets of infants, children, and adolescents. And so you think about like what are the you know externalities of that introduction early on in life? You know, you're having these things early in your sort of food journey. And so what does that, what does that do like later on in life? Yeah. Across on a variety of fronts, not only the direct health impacts that may begin at that time, but also impacts on longer term food preferences and things like that. Like if you're having this stuff that, you know, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit, but as far as like the systems that are involved in, in influencing and regulating our appetite, we have obviously this one system, it's called the homeostatic system that responds to like, okay, do you need calories or not, right? Your actual physiological need for food. But the one that's more relevant here is the system called the hedonic system, which refers to more like kind of pleasure seeking type, you know, uh, behavior. Um, and so when that is just getting like maximally lit up by these foods, uh, you know, the rest of your life, if you tried to, to backtrack, if that's what you were exposed to really early on, it's interesting to think about what could be the implications of that. And like, could you ever feasibly really go back if that's what you were, you know, brought up on primed with things like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, most of the dietary guidelines currently focus on ingredients that are common in processed foods. So like if you look at the 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines for Americans, they explicitly say, you know, let's avoid foods with added salt or sodium uh, to be more particular, uh, avoid foods with added fats and avoid foods with added sugars, particularly of the refined variety. But they don't actually say, hey, let's avoid processed foods point blank. Um, that's kind of in contrast to a few other um, guidelines that have been published. So for example, the 2021 American Heart Association scientific statement on dietary guidance to improve cardiovascular health says, choose minimally processed food instead of ultra processed foods, but no like particular description of what those things are. And then also like, and one of the themes we'll kind of keep coming back to is like, what are the odds that people can like pick out oh, this is a processed food and this is a uh, non-processed food because, you know, there's kind of a gray zone. Like, yeah. Uh, and it, it's funny because you kind of go down the list when you when you read this Nova classification system, you're like, okay, so is fat-free Greek yogurt, that's probably minimally processed. But if it's at, if you, if they added fruit and sugar to it, now that's ultra processed. Yeah. And it's like, man, you almost needed a degree in this stuff to kind of, <laughs> to know what it is. Uh, but yeah, a few other guidelines, like the High Council of on Public Health of France, put a wow. goal yeah i know right the high council seems like they, they're in game game of thrones or something i was just thinking that i was like man they probably got dragons over there <laughs> they one of their goals is a 20 percent reduction in ultra processed food consumption as a goal uh from 2018 to 2022 so i have low uh low hopes that they've achieved that goal because it seems like all civilized countries the ultra processed food intakes going up Think about what would be necessary to, to if, if the intake is upwards of 50%, to achieve a 20% reduction in that is not an insignificant amount. And you are, again, as, as we've talked about at length before, like how much of our eating behavior and food selection and things like that are driven by subconscious processes and things like that. So just telling people, don't eat these foods, uh, uh, not going to work and certainly not going to achieve that level 
of reduction. And so it's kind of like when people hate on the dietary guidelines, when it's like, actually, most of the guidelines are fine. The issue is that, you know, people don't follow them. And then we should be kind of working on why is that the case? And much of that revolves around the food environment. So like, is France, if this is their goal, willing to heavily modify the food environment through, you know, legal and regulatory means and things like that, if, if possible, and, uh, you know, risk getting called, you know, nanny state communists and things like that just like just like just like we do when we bring this topic up <laughs> yeah i mean so the so the thought here is that if you recommend that people avoid specific nutrients so like avoid foods with added sodium added fats and added sugars uh or other components of ultra processed foods is that a good dietary recommendation or do you, can you just tell people to avoid ultra processed foods and is that a good recommendation and you know you kind of hinted at why this may not be a you know a series of great recommendations but uh i think before that let's let's cover some of the known effects on health um that ultra processed foods tend to have so we have extensive data showing that there's a dose dependent uh relationship between consumption of ultra processed foods and negative health outcomes. So the more ultra processed foods are found in a dietary pattern, the greater risk of things like obesity, type two diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, high blood cholesterol, certain cancers, fatty liver disease, kidney disease, depression, death attributable to cardiovascular disease and from all causes. This is not really surprising. Um, but one of the th the things that I did find that, that was really interesting was that, uh, for every 1% increase in the national household availability of ultra processed foods, for every 1% increase, it's associated with a quarter percent increase in the national prevalence of obesity after adjusting for income, physical inactivity, and smoking. So it's just like the more of this stuff that's around portends a bad outcome, which speaks to that food environment thing that you were talking about. It's like if it's there, you're going to eat it. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? If it's in your house, you're going to eat it. And, and even, you know, more when we talk about food environment, it's not just restricted to your home, but what about at work? What about in your local community? It's like if there's a ton of places to obtain very cheap, very energy dense, a lot of calories and very tasty foods, which are tend to be ultra processed in nature, like, man, that's going to be tough to say no. And yeah. It's going to be tough to say no continuously. Um, yeah, so, you know, other connections that we see are increases in ultra-processed food and drink volume sales per capita are also associated with population-level BMI trajectories. So the more ultra-processed food and drinks that are sold, the higher the BMI tends to climb. Um, the only, like, randomized controlled trial that was done under well-controlled settings, this is by Kevin Hall, I believe it was nineteen in 2020 or might've been 21 the past two years. Yeah, I think. Yeah. So basically over a two week period, they took 20 young adults and uh, half of them consumed a diet with 83% of the energy coming from ultra processed foods. And the other half uh, consumed a minimally processed food diet. Um, and so those consuming a diet higher in ultra processed foods actually ate on average about 500 more calories per day than the people consuming a minimally processed food diet. And so at the end of two weeks, those folks gained about one kilo or 2.2 pounds. And the other group actually uh, lost a little bit of weight. And, and Austin, why is that the expected finding? Because I, I think when people are hearing this, they're like, okay, so they ate more ultra processed foods and they ate more calories and they gained weight. Like, duh. But like, I think hashing out this food environment thing is probably a little bit more uh, nuanced here. So why is that the expected finding? 
Yeah, I mean, we still, and this is ongoing, and this is probably going to be an ongoing argument like forever, where where people who are not adequately informed or read up on or educated on the neurobiology of obesity will will tend to say, oh, like dealing with obesity, dealing with body fat is a simple thing. Just get people to eat less. You know, it's it, it's that simple. And again, that just ignores how complex this neurobiology is and how much of it is happening kind of um, in this in these areas of the brain that are called subcortical uh, that are that are deep in the brain. And those are reflected in that they are not consciously controlled areas. So I mentioned earlier, these two out of the three major systems that kind of influence our food seeking behavior, our eating behavior, things like that. So we have the homeostatic system that, you know, that responds to our need for calories, our need for energy, the hedonic system. That's more like reward behavioral kind of reinforcement. When we find something that we really like, that we enjoy, whatever the case is, pleasure seeking kind of uh, uh, behavior as well as, as well as, as it relates to our eating. And then the, the, the frontal areas of, of our brain that are more of our like conscious ex- executive decision-making, the quote-unquote kind of willpower areas. And so, you know, when we look at uh, neuroscientific studies on these areas and as they relate to obesity and how they function differently in patients with obesity or people with obesity compared to people without, we see all sorts of differences. And, and it is very, very clear that the hedonic system, this like pleasure-seeking system, it can easily override the homeostatic system, meaning the pleasure-seeking system can easily override our like just straight-up need for calories, even in the presence of abundant energy supplies, even when we have plenty of calories, even when we've consumed enough calories for the meal or for the day or for the week, or if we have excess body fat already, we're like, we're like flush with, with, uh, calories and, and energy supply. This hedonic system can still easily override that and drive the overconsumption of highly palatable food. And for folks who don't really understand this neurobiology, they say, Oh, those, these people are just gluttonous or lazy or whatever the fact, whatever the case is. Um, but when people do like say certain kinds of neuroimaging studies on this, we see areas where the, uh, people with obesity who are in this situation, their kind of reward behavioral reinforcement pleasure centers of the brain may light up uh, uh, a little bit less in some situations, requiring more intake to get the same level. Their uh, um, the the homeostatic systems that uh, are involved in regulation around our energy needs may be less active. The frontal areas of our brain are definitely less active, and those are the areas that get basically inhibited when we're like stressed or sleep deprived or any of these other things um, that can really limit what people commonly describe as willpower and result in recommendations of like, oh, just try harder <laughs> when instead it's like there's some there's some neurobiology that you are not in control of here, which is where, you know, the food environment plays a major role in driving like, hey, if this is the biology that we're working with, it is going to be expressed in the context of the environment. Right. And so that's where if you're in an environment with all these UP ultra processed foods everywhere, super high palatability food, high calorie density foods, then that is going to be the natural trajectory of a fraction of the population who's in that environment compared to if they're in a very sparse, not calorie dense sort of environment, then that will not manifest uh, with the kind of presentation of, of increasing body fat and obesity and things like that. And so as we've said on other podcasts, unless we're willing to like revamp and overhaul the food environment, using the medical treatments that we have available that more directly target these kind of subcortical appetite regulating areas is our next best bet. And we see data studies on these medications that we're using with increasing frequency these days, that it does better control the signaling in these areas. It does give people better control over their eating behaviors and increasing self-efficacy and 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 uh, suppressing appetite and increasing satiety and things like that. And that's what is leading to, you know, 10, 15, 20, now tw- up, upwards of 25 plus percent 
weight loss with a with a simple you know injection or something like that because it's kind of restoring normal neurobiological signaling in the context of this profoundly screwed up food environment that people find themselves in and uh, and in, in many cases don't have the luxury of being able to escape it. Yeah, yeah that that preservation of like energy balance despite having excess energy stores, body fat, you know, that's the root of obesity, right? And so you're just wondering why, like, why are people uh, prone to sort of, some people, why are they prone to kind of maintaining that energy balance, despite having extra energy stores on board? And it's like, well, the food environment is heavily involved in that. Uh, And ultra processed foods are certainly contributory to that, that food environment. And so the, the, it'd be interesting to kind of discuss now the mechanisms by which ultra processed foods may kind of hijack that sort of uh, system. Because what what you would want to happen is if you had excess energy stores on board, that you'd say, hmm, I, sh- I in response, will eat a little bit less to offload some of these energy stores. Uh, and so when that doesn't happen, you're like, huh, something is is amiss. And it's, not, and it's not even that you would consciously decide I, I'm going to eat a little bit less. It's rather I don't have the appetite to eat as much as I would if my energy stores were lower. I don't, yeah. you know. So this is all subconscious there. stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and so why then subconsciously is, is this thing being hijacked? And so this these pr- the presence of these ultra-processed foods in the food environment tend to be uh, pretty predictive of, of what happens. And, and uh, effectively, the mechanisms we're looking at for ultra-processed foods contributing to that hijacking of this appetite satiety uh, sort of regulatory system uh, is basically two main categories, one being the nutrient content of these foods and the other as a direct result of the processing, the ultra-processing process itself. So from this nutrient content perspective, ultra-processed foods tend to be more energy dense, meaning they have more calories per gram. So ultra processed foods on average have 2.3 calories per gram and minimally processed or unprocessed foods have 1.1 calories per gram. And so you're thinking, you're like, man, I'm getting over double the amount of calories per, you know, volume of food. So already you're likely to take in more energy that way. Just think about the impact of that, you know, when you mentioned that there are some countries, say US, UK, for example, where the average energy intake from these foods is upwards of like 50, 55% of calories. And there are other countries where looking at their data, some of the Mediterranean countries, for example, things like that, they on average tend to eat maybe more on the order of like 20% or something like that from ultra processed food. So like, if if the difference in energy intake from these foods is 20% versus 50%, and then we look at the energy density, and it's like over double for the ultra processed foods compared to non processed like think about the compounding effects of all of that over long periods of time in the population. Yeah. And, uh, additionally, when you look at the nutrient content, ultra-processed foods tend to uh, have high amounts of added fat, particularly saturated fat, um, added sugars, so sugar that's not already in the food stuff itself. It's added to the food and then added sodium. Uh, and it's kind of like the three horses of the apocalypse <laughs> right there because the, that combination of food tends to really trigger that hedonic sort of appetite system. You put those things together, ooh, it's salty, ooh, it's got fat, ooh, it's sweet. You put that together and it's like, man, I could eat anything. That's like when the cake comes out and you're full and you're like, I could eat that cake. And it's really worth pointing out that like, you know, there are people who in diet circles will still be blaming like singular nutrients or singular ingredients or singular food components or say it's the carbs or it's the fat or it's the sugar or whatever the case is. When it's like, if you actually looked at those ingredients in isolation, like let me sit you down in front of a bowl of table sugar, show me yeah. how much you can eat. Or let me yeah. sit you down in front of a, a, a glass of, you know, of, of olive oil or something like that. Show me how much calories you can overconsume. Right. It's not, it's not that thing uniquely. These particular combinations that of course, with, you know, economic incentives, food industry has 
landed upon the thing that lights your brain up as much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> both both from an ingredient standpoint and from a textural standpoint. Yeah. So it's, it's not like people are, yeah, they're ODing on, you know, sugar cubes <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, uh, uh, like you said, olive oil, but, but hamburgers. Yeah. Oh, you bet. You betcha. Chips. <laughs> you betcha. Pizza. You betcha. Yeah. Um, so in addition to having more added fat, more added sugar and more added sodium, there's less fiber, less protein and other micronutrients. Uh, and so, you know, you start thinking about like if a particular food or nutrient is displaced from the diet, what are people eating to compensate for that? And it's like, all right, so we got less fiber, less protein, less micronutrients, and we're eating more fat, more sugar, more sodium because of the high intake of ultra processed foods. Like, and they're more energy dense and they're less f- filling. Like, what is it that sets us up for just eating more calories? And that's exactly what you see. You see with higher intakes of ultra processed foods, you see higher energy intakes. And so it should be no surprise that these things track together. Increased body weight, increased BMI, increased body fatness, et cetera, uh, correlate with increased ultra processed food intake. And so, yeah, it's, it's just, it's the exact expected response. And that's just, again, one of the two categories just from the nutrient content of ultra processed foods themselves. From a direct result of the processing, these things become super, super tasty. So flavor, texture, mouthfeel, et cetera. You got food scientists working around the clock trying to figure out ways to hack your brain. And I'm not throwing the food scientists under the, under the bus. Look, some of these things are tasty. And for that, <laughs> I thank you. Okay. Yes. <laughs> but, but like there, there are, as you said, the incentives for creating really tasty foods that don't necessarily fill you up, but rather force you to eat more. I mean, that's kind of, that's the whole thing here. Um, and so when you have these industrialized food processing techniques, you can create these sort of Franken foods that are super, super tasty. And yeah, again, by the way, they have added calories in them, added sugar, added salt, added fat. And you're like, which makes those things combined again, just on their own, make you want to eat more in addition to these, these other techniques that make them more palatable. One of my, one of my favorite things, I don't know if this is still their motto because I haven't eaten a bag of Lay's chips in a very long time, but how it literally says on the bag, like, I bet you can't eat just one. It's like, yeah, Pringles was just telling you straight up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, was it Pringles is like, once you pop, you can't stop. And it's like, yeah, these companies, they don't, they're like, we'll tell you the game. We know you, we know you're weak. You can't handle this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the other part that, that I thought was interesting, uh, we talk about this thing called like the food matrix and that's basically like the sum of the food is greater than its individual parts. And so when we talk about like health benefits from eating fruits and vegetables, it's not just because, you know, one weird molecule or flavonoid or phytonutrient that's in the actual vegetable or fruit itself, but the combination of all of those flavonoids, all of the phytonutrients, all of the minerals, et cetera, together have this unique effect that tend to, tends to promote health. But when they these foods are uh, highly processed, you have less of these things in them. And there may be some changes in the gut microbiome, maybe some differences in, in how we metabolize them. Although, you know, it's unclear what the net effect is of this processing, but it's certainly a potential mechanism that ultimately results in increased energy intake, less feeling of full, lower feelings of fullness. So they, people tend to eat more. And again, I think if you had to drill down, uh, you know, what is the major sort of underlying effect of increased ultra processed food consumption, it's going to be increased energy intake. Would you be on board with that? I would be on board with that as the, over, as the primary driver. Of course, there can be secondary or tertiary, like smaller effects, but yeah, that's probably yeah. where I'd lean. 
And and so just to kind of hammer this home, like why this has become such an issue and has, you know, probably been one of the root causes of the, uh, you know, obesity epidemic and, and whatnot. Uh, in the last 50 years, calorie intake from sources outside the home has grown from about 15% to 33% of an individual's daily energy intake. So people are eating more meals, more food outside the home than ever before. You know, based on a 2012 analysis of the 2007 to 2008 National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey data, 41% of adults consumed foods from fast food type restaurants and 27% from full service restaurants during the 24 hours prior to the survey. That's just the day before. Imagine if you had like a whole month's worth of data. And so, yeah, people are eating outside the home more than ever. There are more opportunities to eat outside the home more than ever. And what do you think these meals or these foods that people are eating are comprised of? You think they're minimally processed, very fresh, no process? Like, of course not. They're, yeah. they're, yeah, more processed, more added stuff to make them tastier. Uh, and, 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 and it's, and, and the incentives from the restaurant standpoint are not necessarily, we want you to like eat as much as possible, but rather like, we want you to come back and like order more stuff. So, <laughs> and so, so the, so there are similarly perverse incentives from the standpoint of, uh, keeping the population, you know, uh, consuming a generally guideline concordant health promoting diet and keeping them lean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is kind of interesting, you know, cause people will say, well, yeah, the, those, you know, restaurants or those, you know, convenience stores or whatever that sell these types of foods, they're, they're, they're there, sure. But what if we just had more healthy opportunities for people to eat? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that, you know, change, change the game here? And uh, the data on that is pretty interesting. So, so a couple term, a term that people may have heard before, uh, it's called a food desert. It's a particular type of food environment that's discussed in the scientific literature. A food desert, for example, is an area with limited access to healthy foods. It's basically determined by the distance between the home and local supermarkets or other establishments, including restaurants that have healthy foods. There's another term that's much uh, less frequently discussed, and it's called a food swamp. Food swamps are areas that have increased access to fast food or other unhealthy food choices as measured by the density of these establishments in relation to the home. And so both food deserts and swamps are associated with poor dietary quality, higher BMI, and an increased risk of obesity. However, even when supermarkets and stores are built in food deserts that have health you know, healthy foods or other foods that could be part of a health promoting dietary pattern, the BMI values and overall diet quality tend to stay the same. So effectively, the bigger predictive factor here in a person's dietary pattern, and ultimately how much energy they take in per day is how much access do they have to these ultra processed foods and to these highly energy dense foods that are cheap, heavily marketed, etc. Because human brains are going to do what human brains do, as we have established. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's like if you kept a bunch of tasty treats in the home, right? It, it's like, if you have a, an abundance of these things in the home, it is going to be very difficult for you not to eat them. Now, now, and if you scale that up to your whole community, it's like, man, every corner I go, I got this opportunity to eat yeah. these just very cause tasty. A, just because like a, a, a salad shop opens up on the corner doesn't mean that suddenly it's going to fix things. <laughs> a sa yeah, a salad shop. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been to Tender Greens? You've been, no, been there. Oh, okay, yeah, I, I got my first exposure to that when I moved to LA, and I was like, "Oh man, this place is great." But you know what's right next to Tender Greens? Crack Shack. And let me tell you, <laughs> ten out of ten prefer Crack Shack to Tender Greens. Yeah, that's uh, if you guys haven't had Crack Shack, you come to San Diego area. Ten out of ten would recommend. But again, don't take it home with you, and, and you know, maybe maybe just maybe just a touch. So yeah, overall, people are more likely to consume these ultra processed foods uh, compared to minimally processed options um, if they're more prevalent in the environment. And 
if they consume more ultra-processed foods, they're likely to consume a higher energy intake per day. And with a higher energy in- intake per day, particularly if it is in excess of what they need or uh, if it sort of hijacks that appetite satiety uh, sort of relationship uh, that's going on subconsciously, people are going to preserve those excess energy stores by preserving energy balance. And that's, again, these aren't conscious decisions. It's just kind of happening because, as you said, human brains are going to do what human brains do. Um, So it seems like we're saying that ultra-processed foods tend to not be health-promoting, but I I don't want to paint this all like bleak picture, like, hey, all food processing is bad. Don't process anything. Let's just get back to the land. You know, everybody's got a garden or whatever. I I don't think that's the solution. Uh, So for example, food insecurity uh, is a big deal, uh, about 10%, 13.5 million uh, U.S. households were food insecure at some point during 2021, um, and that was about the same in 2020. Now, this isn't the same as hunger. Uh, they're closely related, but they're different concepts. So hunger refers to a personal physical sensation or of discomfort, um, while food insecurity refers to a lack of available financial resources for food at the household level. Ultra-processed foods are kind of filling that gap because they tend to be cheaper uh, and therefore may be beneficial at reducing food insecurity for individuals uh, who have a lower socioeconomic status, lower financial resources to actually, you know, spend on food. Um, And so when you actually look at like food prices over the years, ultra-processed foods did not increase in price as much as unprocessed foods over the last 12 years. They're lower per calorie uh, cost-wise, so it's about 55 cents uh, versus $1.45. Uh, per uh, calorie. And you think about like, man, if you had limited resources to spend on on food, it's going to be difficult to eat a minimally processed food diet in addition to other things like having enough time to cook, knowing how to cook, having a working you know oven, microwave, places to store food, all these other sorts of things. But just the actual purchasing of the food is going to be difficult. Um, and, you know, consistent uh, with the evidence that higher socioeconomic status individuals in the U.S. have higher quality diets, ultra processed foods make up a lower proportion of energy intake among highly educated and higher income individuals. And again, this is kind of what you would expect if you have these additional resources and you have been uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, more resources as far as cooking goes, more education, etc. You're likely to need to rely on ultra processed foods to a lower degree. I mean, that's just kind of what we see here. Uh, This isn't perfect, of course, you know, just because we're kind of reducing food insecurity via having more ultra processed foods available. uh, These foods, again, tend to have lower nutrient density. So they have less, you know, fiber, uh, flavonoids, phytonutrients, et cetera, good stuff that you want in the foods per, uh, uh, per calorie. And they also have a higher energy density. So again, more calories per volume of food. And it's like, well, just because we're, you're not hungry, you know, we're less food insecure. Uh, doesn't mean that we're f- feeding you the the right stuff. Yeah, there may be some, you know, plenty of 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 if to the extent that you are averting food insecurity, you may be incurring harms or costs in in other ways. And so, uh, that's a that's a tough situation without an easy answer to to you know avert all possible bad outcomes is is kind of a, a utopian vision. I think at the moment. Yeah. yeah. the The other part, and this is probably more, I guess, interesting to me, um, is that food processing. Uh, may like be our road to improving sustainability of our whole food supply. So developing zero discard, zero waste, zero lost like technologies and other ways to like improve food yield and less spoilage and trans easier transport and a more, you know, uh, well-designed global food supply chain. That's all going to require 
new processing techniques. And some of those foods are likely going to fall into the ultra-processed food category. What you would hope, though, is that these those ultra-processed foods do not remove the fiber, do not remove the protein, do not remove you know these other sorts of uh, good stuff that we want within the food and don't add things like salt, sugar, fat, et cetera, that make them more palatable. Um, and I think when you look at f- food sustainability stuff, now I'm certainly not an expert in food sustainability, the processes aren't like, yeah, we just added a bunch of salt to this and it made it better. They're, they're talking about a whole bunch of different uh, biological things uh, that I am not aware of, like how that even works. But uh, we'll, we'll see what happens over the next uh, you know, few years with respect to food processing techniques that, that improve the sustainability of, of uh, our food supply chain. And, and, and to the extent that any of that work on a food item that results in it being more sustainable or whatever the case is, to the extent that any of that work lands it in a higher processing category, I think we still care less about that label compared with, you know, evidence on what is the health impact of this particular food on humans. Uh, and as always, when we talk about, you know, food and diet and nutrition and things like that, it's always like, and comparing that with what like if you're going to eat this compared with eating that in in some um, some quantity or some uh, some amount what's the health impact we care about evidence on that and in humans much 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 more than we care oh this because of these uh, uh processes that were involved that lands it in group three and therefore it's bad or group four and that means it's bad whatever the case is so like the label there uh means a bit less However, if we do see all of those features that we have discussed that typically lead to spontaneous overconsumption, all these negative health impacts, pulling out fiber and, and, and phytonutrients and, and, and uh, jacking up sugar, added sugar and sodium content, stuff like that, then we can plausibly predict that this is going to have, you know, net harm on the health of the person, particularly if it's compared with, you know, food items that we would consider more generally healthful. Um, and so, so that's kind of like the perspective that I would take to the extent that we see new and emerging kind of food items come into come into the supply if that makes sense yeah yeah i agree i mean it, the take home for me is like yeah we, we know that there's converging evidence that a healthy diet consists predominantly of whole plant-based foods including fruit vegetables legumes nuts whole grains and you know lean lean animal products uh cool that's generally not being argued you know outside of like some some maybe maybe fringe groups um the question really here is like should we be recommending that folks consume less ultra processed foods and does that label actually matter and and i think you would have to have this very expensive public health campaign where you're labeling all these foods as like group one group two group three group four and then like this education program where people realize that group four ultra processed foods tend to on average have these you know added sugar added fat added sodium and then that tends to make people eat more. And so if you like ha- did all of that, then maybe the recommendation to eat less ultra processed foods results in the behavioral change we want, which is for people to eat more, more sati- satiating full, uh, foods and, and not overconsume these foods that predominate the local food environment. But then that goes back to the food environment. And so does that recommendation actually change the food environment? <laughs> I don't know how you do that, man. Yeah, this is complicated stuff. Uh, and, and I think that hopefully it, all the times uh, over the years, I guess, that we've, that these topics have come up on the podcast have helped to illustrate to people how, how just how complex of a problem this is. And it's, you know, it's, it, it, it helps to illustrate how if you look at like population level health data, I saw, I saw an interesting graph recently, it had uh, a, a graph of the rates of obesity 
over the prior 100 years. And it was stratified by age demographic, like by each 10 year increment of like birth cohort or something like that. And they were all going up in parallel at each point along the way. And it was like, imagine looking at this and thinking that like every generation is spontaneously just becoming more progressively lazy every decade or something like that. And it's like, that is such a, a, a it's it's not, I can't even call it reductionist just because it's, it's wrong. It's like, <laughs> it's a smooth brain take. take. I like yeah. that. I like that. Smooth so it's just take. profoundly complex stuff that's happening neurobiologically with the person and then putting that in the context of the environment, which has changed so rapidly, makes it really difficult. So um, yeah, we got a tough problem ahead of us here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the big issue with the ultra processed foods is, is what they do to the hunger and satiety kind of, you know, system and that how prevalent they are. It just you, and what they're and what they're what they would be displacing from the diet if they were not present right so the things that they just that's an, that's an added layer of like potential harm is like what would people be eating instead if those if they were not if you could snap your fingers and make them non-existent what would people be eating and on average i would guess to the extent that food insecurity was not as much of an issue then uh probably more healthful foods <laughs> yeah yeah i just think like i said if you if you just tell people to eat less processed foods it's like Mm, I don't know that that results in the behavior that we want. It's kind of like just telling people to eat less and move more. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I want to eat the most <laughs> health promoting food. I just, yeah, it, it's not available or because of my, the food environment, like I can't consciously choose to do that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. Tough. Yeah. So if you're listening to this and you're like, man, you guys, you got real political there at the end. It's like, well, there's gonna. We're this gonna is an inherently do, political topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's gonna be tough. It's gonna be tough. Yeah, if you if you really want to solve this problem, it's gonna take some some policy change at every level of, uh, you know, the food manufacturing, food marketing, all the sort of stuff. And and to the, I don't have an answer. You know, I just know <laughs> that those things are are gonna have to change. So, anyway. This has been episode 192 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Take home here is that to the extent you can uh, consume a minimally processed diet, like do that to the extent you can modify your food environment so that that becomes the automatic default behavior. Do that. Things outside of your control, do the best you can. And uh, we support you in that journey. Uh, Austin, anything you want to leave the, uh, the audience with? There was actually one thing that I meant to mention uh, when we were talking about, are they all bad? And and so there is a role for these foods, I think, in certain like clinical populations. Um, so, so for people who demonize, you know, these more processed foods, you know, universally, I think that that probably reflects that they have never seen somebody who has absolutely no appetite from like some bad medical condition from bad, you know, from being on chemotherapy, from heart failure, from like advanced, you know, other, other diseases. And so it's like, if that person who's in front of me, if I, if I want to sit them down in front of a meal of like, you know, lentils and and salmon and some other stuff it's like zero percent of that is going down but if i can get them to have a super tasty shake that yes it may have some sugar in it it may have some other things and it may be fortified um you know with vitamins and minerals rather than those coming from their from from whole food sources and things like that i will take that deal 10 out of 10 times for a patient who's in that kind of a situation um so just a, a little side note of like a place where they actually have you know, more utility than people might give them credit for. Yeah. Also, like I said, whey protein is, you know, an ultra processed food and actually tends Found to it. be very, very satiating. Um, yeah. can be beneficial if you need to take in more protein. Um, the other thing I would say is that, well, we're not saying you don't, you should never eat ultra processed foods. It's just that if you are trying to regulate your energy intake it, on some level, it's going to require more conscious willpower, or as you have uh, <laughs> called the dietary RPE is going to go up because these things tend to be 
less satiating and yeah. promote a higher energy intake. And so it's like, look, if you want the Pop-Tarts, eat, eat the Pop-Tarts. But just know that you may compensate less completely later on when it comes time to eat your next meal. And so to the extent that that is one of your goals, you just take that into consideration. But it's, you know, saying it's all bad or all good, I feel like, yeah, another smooth brain, another smooth <laughs> brain take. <laughs> cool. All right, cool. So uh, all of the links uh, to not only our seminars uh, or protein, um, all of our information and the articles that we talked about here are linked in the description below. So check that out. Before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance and health and fitness. For Dr. Austin Baraki, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.